You're listening to the official Dietitian Connection podcast. This podcast gives you access to the most successful and influential experts in the dietetic profession. This podcast will inspire you, it will challenge you, and it will empower you to become a nutrition leader and realize your dreams. Welcome to today's Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the founder and director of Dietitian Connection. It's a great pleasure today to have Dr. Joanna McMillan with us. I've had Joanna on our list for quite some time. Uh, Joanna, as I probably don't need to introduce you, um, Joanna McMillan is one of Australia's most well-known dietitians. And what I love about Joanna is she just makes sometimes complicated nutrition me- messages just sound so easy for the public. Um, Joanna is a regular on television and radio, and she's been with the Today Show for more than a decade. And more recently, Joanna filmed the documentary series with ABC Catalyst called Gut Revolution, which I know a lot of dietitians have listened to or watched, which explored the fascinating world of the gut microbiome. Uh, I don't know how Joanna fits everything in, but she's also an accomplished author of six books. And her most recent one, you might want to check it out, is Get Lean, Stay Lean, which came out last year, and she's currently working on her seventh. So thanks so much for joining us today, Joanna, and welcome. Thanks for having me, Marie. Lovely to be here. I thought I'd take us all the way back to the beginning and why you decided to become a dietitian. And I can't remember whether mm. you studied dietetics in Scotland or in Australia. I, I did originally. Well, actually, I started out. I was always going to do science um, or, or music, in fact, were my two different different things. Um, and But I was pretty certain I wanted to go down the science path. But I sort of got a little bit waylaid. And I, when I started university, I wanted to do something a bit different. And the trendy thing at the time was psychology and sociology, all the sort of social sciences. So I actually did those and French and French literature. Um, I'm a big reader. So anyway, it was a very sort of bizarre start, but it wasn't the right start for me. Um, I don't regret it because I think you learn something from everything you do. But I did a couple of years of that before I decided that was not for me and was spending all my time in the gym. So I actually trained as a fitness instructor. But yes, eventually I realized I needed to add more to that. And that was really what led me to nutrition was I was working as a fitness instructor. I was kind of in that health space. And then, but wanted to study more. I've always been a bit of a nerd, an academic, really. So I wanted to go back to university and, and nutrition and dietetics was the natural fit. Yeah. So in, in Scotland at that time, you did um, you did a, a Bachelor of Science, essentially, with honours in nutrition and dietetics. And it wasn't until I came out to Australia in 99 that I then did my PhD with Sydney University and, and continued my career right here. Mm-hmm. And so what made you do your research? And can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about your PhD research? Yeah, well, when I finished off, um, I I did a a really interesting research project, which actually I've kind of come 360 because my honours research project back in Scotland was looking at oligosaccharides and legumes and beans and how they were essentially a fuel source for bacteria in the gut. And now here I am some 25 or so years later, um, now again looking at at gut bugs and and how much the research has come on since those early days. But really, I always had a real interest in research. And in fact, my my first job post-graduating as a dietitian was working at a place called the Rowett Research Institute, which is just outside Aberdeen in Scotland. It's one of Europe's biggest nutrition research centers, both for human and animal nutrition. 
Um, and I worked there on a, on a colon cancer trial, um, looking at broccoli and analyzing antioxidants anti, um, and so on in broccoli, potential phytonutrients that were there, and what impact that had on, on um, the gut in, in a pig model. Um, so, so that was kind of where I started, but then I felt like I needed some work experience before going on to do a PhD. So really, that was part of my move to Australia, was I was really interested in the research work that was going on, particularly in Jenny Brand Miller's group with the glycemic index research. I was interested in high protein diets. With my background in the fitness industry, they were all the rage as they, they still are now, really. Um, and so I was interested in actually putting some science behind things that I saw happening in the fitness industry. And really, that's what led me to, to Sydney University. So I came to Australia with nothing more than a credit card bill, <laughs> left my job in my company car in London and decided to take a punt and came to Australia. And really, you know, I, I, I um, I'm often asked by young dietitians, you know, how do I how do I get a leg up? How do I get to do these things? And and I think sometimes you have to be a little bit bullshit. You know, I I got no response from Sydney University. I'd sent my CV and I'd written from London and no one had responded to me. And literally after I'd been in Australia from six months, for six months rather, not getting any response, I actually just rocked up to the I was gonna say, did you just rock up to the door? <laughs> I, I walked into at the time the secretary's just outside the it was uh, Professor Ian Caterson was head of the department at the time. His secretaries were just outside his office, and I literally went in there, was chatting to the, sec uh, the secretaries, and it was serendipity because Ian walks in while I was in there and said, "Who are you?" And I said, yeah. "I want to do a PhD. I'm Joanna." Mm -hmm. And so into his office we went, and and that was really the kickoff. He helped me to get a scholarship, introduced me to Jenny, and things took off from there. So I think there's a real lesson there that sometimes mm -hmm. don't take no for an answer. Just go and put your face in front of someone, and often a face-to-face -face meeting is is really what opens the door for you. Yeah, most definitely. So tell us a little bit about the PhD research then. Mm. Well, what was funny was then when I was sitting in Ian's office, he said to me, well, what do you, my back was to, there was a whiteboard on the wall and he said, What's, what project do you want to do? And I explained, I was a fitness instructor and I said, I'm really interested in glycemic index research and in high protein diets. And I'd really like to do some sort of a research study that looks at not just weight loss, but it, because the big thing in the fitness industry was weight tells you nothing and you need to look at muscle mass and fat mass. So I wanted to do DEXA scanning and I wanted to look at actual body composition change with these different diets. Um, and so he said, turn around and look at the board. And I turned around and looked at the board. And here was a outline of a study Jenny wanted to do with looking at glycemic index compared to high protein. And it was, uh, you know, it was kind of uncanny that it was so close <laughs> to exactly what I'd said. So I really was in the right place at the right time. And yeah. we extended the study to look at, you know, what happened in a single day to things like blood glucose and blood insulin. Um, and I had some honors students helping me with that. And then we also looked at cardiovascular disease risk factors and so on. So we sort of broadened out the study from there. But it was certainly a, you know, it was a great experience. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that time I had at Sydney University. It taught me a lot. And what did you do straight after that? Well, I stayed on with the university for a while. And I think for all of us who are who are sort of, you know, along our in our careers, then most of us have hit junctions at some point where you have to make a decision about which way to turn. So when I first left, I just had, um, I think I'd had both my boys, but they were both still babies. 
I remember sitting in journal club with my eldest Oliver in a little, you know, harness against my chest. Um, and he was such a good baby. I was able to do that. But the second one came along and he wasn't quite so easy. And so um, it sort of became more difficult. So I actually worked part time at that time. So I took a job with Jenny as a as a as a post researcher, uh, postdoc researcher. And I worked at the university three days a week while, you know, juggling a bit of extra stuff at, at home myself. But I reached a, a junction in my career where, you know, with two young children um, trying to work from home, a husband who was never there, I, I really had to think about which way do I want to go. And more and more, my media work was taking off. I, I was, you know, I'd, my first book had been published. Um, I'd done a book with Jenny, The Low GI Diet. And so really, I sort of had to make a choice. I can't do everything. Am I going to give it a shot working for myself? Or am I going to continue in the academic and research route? And that was a tricky one for me because I, I still love academics and research. You know, I think I'm a relatively good teacher. So going down that route was always a good option for me. But but ultimately, at the time with a young family, I thought, oh, I'm going to try it on my own and I can always come back to this later. So, you know, several years later, I'm still on my own. <laughs> I've got my foot still in the academic <laughs> camp and actually moving back in that direction a little bit <laughs> now. Um, but but yeah, it's just, you know, I, I'm glad I made that decision because it's been a really interesting career for me so far. And um, mm. I hope I've got a long way to go. You certainly do. And a, a lot of people ask me how important it is to have a PhD. What do you, what do you think from your perspective? How much do you think that's, you know, uh, yeah. contributed to your success or Look, helped I certainly you in some ways? I, I certainly, I, I really enjoyed the process of doing my PhD. Of course, there were many times during it took me five years rather than four because I, because I had my babies. Um, through the course of it, rather stupidly, I had my first baby thinking writing up a PhD thesis with a young baby would be the perfect time because they sleep. So, <laughs> What were you thinking? Longer. I know, I know. Hindsight's a great thing. Um, so it did take me five years, but look, and there were times in those five years when I thought, I'm just not going to be able to do this. I'm not, not going to be able to complete this. But it really actually was a good grounding for being able to work on my own. A lot of people say to me now, how can you work from home on your, on your own? Um, how can you motivate yourself? And, and, and really actually those five years of doing my PhD was the grounding for that because it, you don't go to lectures. You don't have a timetable. You know, you don't have people checking up on you all of the time. You really do have to be self-motivated. So I think it actually gave me those skills to have to motivate myself, to have to do it for myself and to have to go looking for answers and seeking help from people when I needed it. Um, so, so, you know, even if I hadn't got the PhD at the end of the day, I think that process would have, would have been really beneficial. In the media today, I, there is a lot of competition because there's, you know, people calling themselves nutritionists. Um, and, uh, you know, I frequently get this on my television work and radio work that I'll be introduced as a nutritionist, but so will a personal trainer who's done an online course in nutrition, mm -hmm. so will a naturopath, so will, you know, uh, a dietitian, and so will someone who's, who's um, um, let's call them an alternative nutrition trained. So all of those people get bundled into the same basket. So I certainly think having that sort of doctor title and making my brand Dr. Joanna has really helped to, to give me some credibility so that people know that I have a qualification, a degree qualification. People don't always understand what a PhD is, actually, but they at least understand that that's a higher level of qualification. And I'm not just someone who's done a sort of online one-year diploma. So, so that certainly a PhD sets you apart. But for dietitians listening, I think, you know, if you don't have that research drive, it's a big journey to undertake if you don't really enjoy that work. And it's also a financial consideration. You know, the, a, a PhD scholarship is not much. Um, you know, I had a husband helping me at that time financially. 
Um, and then I also was able to do some work. Um, so I did do some lecturing and tutoring for the university. I was fitness instructing. And of course, I did my I had my first books um, published at that time. So there are ways to make some extra income. But, you know, there's no doubt that it's a real financial consideration to, to undertake a PhD. So it's it, it's really for people who want to go down that route, either because you want to be in research and academics well, you've got the ability to undertake that and do a PhD either part-time while you work, then certainly I would encourage you to do it. But you've got to have that drive to do it or you'll never make it. I agree. And in terms of any other tips for budding entrepreneurs, setting up your mm-hmm. own business, you know, you've been doing it for quite a number of years now. You talked about yeah. discipline and any other wise words of wisdom. Yeah, look, I think I think this I mean, the space today is much more crowded than when I first started. And so I think the ability also to change and to to be different and also not to fear competition. You know, I, I, I keep saying this to dietitians when we talk at Dietitians Day at your events and, and at other um, uh, times when I get the opportunity to mix with, with especially younger dietitians up and coming. I think often they think I'm going to fear that they're competition or that we're, we're against each other. And actually not at all. I feel like dietitians and, and qualified nutritionists, degree qualified nutritionists, we've got to band together and actually support each other. Because to me, the more of us that are in the media, spreading the right message, singing from the same song sheet is really important. And that's going to help the public to get the correct messages. So I don't, I actually embrace having more dietitians in the media limelight. Um, and, and I think that's also about being secure in what you can bring to, to, the, to the space. The minute you start doubting yourself and thinking, oh, I'm not as good as all these other people, then, then you know, you're going to fail. So you have to have some, some confidence in your own abilities. Um, understand what your weaknesses are and what other people are better at, and then let's support each other. And I really, really feel strongly that that's the way to move things forward um, and, and not to view competition. Simply simply just look at your own career, where you can go, where you excel at, and move your career into those spaces. Mm-hmm. I always talk about swimming in our own lane and just focusing on what Absolutely. we can do. Absolutely. Yeah. Focus in your own lane, support yeah. your team around you. You know, we're mm-hmm. a team. Um, we're not fighting each other. We're actually, there's plenty of space for us all. You know, look at how much nutrition stuff there is in the media. There's plenty of space for us all to write and appear on television and appear on radio in different capacities and in different, even within, you know, when I first started the Today Show, there weren't any other dietitians. Now there's several who will, will appear. And I think that's a great thing. It's 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 refreshing and it's good and it means that we're getting a really good consistent message out there. And a lot of young dietitians do want to be in the media. How did you get your first break in the media or how do you suggest they go about doing that? Well, I think the first thing is to make yourself available and to recognize that you're probably not going to be paid in the early days. You know, I'm paid for, for most of my TV appearances now, um, but but not for all of them. And I still I've still never been paid for any radio. Um, you know, I frequently do interviews with journalists that are completely free as well. So I think it's recognizing and that's, you know, I, I think for young, um, newly graduated dietitians, you know, they want to be where I am or you are or whatever right now. <laughs> and you have to recognize that people like Susie Burrell and me and you and, and um, you know, uh, Catherine Saxelby and so on, these experienced dietitians in the industry have been doing it for 20 plus years. 
And so, you know, recognize that it does take some time to build your profile and to get yourself known. But in the early days, all I did was I said yes. So I said yes to every media interview that I got. I said yes to appearing on television. I actually started um, with a magazine um, column. I had an editor from uh, an old magazine called Slimming and Health, dreadful title, but old fashioned now. It's no longer there. She actually used to come to my fitness classes, asked me to write some fitness articles. And I said, did you know that I'm also a dietitian? So that was really where it started. Then I got a spot in radio that I did every week with Sally Lohan on ABC Radio and just took call back um, uh, questions from, from listeners. And from there, I was then headhunted and picked up to, to do Burt's Backyard. So, you know, really all of that stuff was for free. And so that's how you have to do. Be available to journalists recognize they have really tight deadlines. So you have to get back to them very quickly if you want to be the person that's quoted. And just over time, you'll find that suddenly they'll come to you because they know you answer quickly and they know they get a good response from you. Get practice at doing it so that you become more um, efficient at giving an interview, being succinct in your answers because radio, TV and print actually are all very short and quick. Everyone wants bite-sized information these days. Um, and so being able to be quite concise is, is, is a skill and it just is practice and doing it. And the better you get, the more they'll start to use you. Mm-hmm. And you recently had the fantastic opportunity to work with the ABC Catalyst with the, the mm. gut revolution. Tell us a little bit more about that and yeah. what, what you well, look, went through the that- process. That was fantastic. So ABC came to me. It was I, actually my first ever book was with ABC. So I have worked with ABC in the past, but my first experience with ABC television. And um, yeah, so they came to me and then we discussed the project. And I've long been fascinated, as I said earlier, you know, that was where my research career started was in gut health. So really, it um, to me, it's a fascinating area and something I did want to explore earlier. So look, again, this was not a financial decision. It really was a work interest um, and it took up a huge amount. It was really three months of, of my time and I'm still working on it. The third episode is is just about to air on the 20th of February. So I've just done the voiceovers for that um, when I, since I came back from holiday. So it's 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 been a very big project, but it was absolutely fascinating because it gave me the opportunity to speak with and interview researchers all around the world. Much of it hasn't made it into the end edits of the show so there's so much in the background there that that we did in research that, you know, you end up with three hours of television when actually we filmed close to 300 hours of, of filming. Wow. So it's a massive project. And that's what people have to understand about television. You know, it, it looks glamorous and it looks like it's all great fun, but there's a massive amount of work in the back end to produce this sort of pinpoint uh, of television that you that you see as the end result. Um, but look, I, you know, absolutely loved it. Um, you know, it was it was all consuming, but fascinating. And I learned huge amounts. There was an exponential learning curve for me um, in terms of, of speaking with micro, everyone from a microbiologist up to neuroscientists and all sorts of other areas of science where I'm not an expert at all. Um, and trying to wrap my head around it and under, understand it all was was really pretty fascinating. And where do you see gut health going in the future mm. in the role of diet? Well, I say this on the show, in fact, that actually I see it as a really exciting space for dietitians because no matter which area of science um, the expert within that, I'm, that I've spoken to, whether it is neuroscience or whether it's the microbiologists, all of them say ultimately that the major thing that affects your microbiome is diet. So this is a really exciting space for dietitians. We have to understand it. We have to know it. And we are the experts about helping people to manipulate and change their diets. So in fact, you know, this, this to me is exciting. You know, many of the dietitians I speak to get frustrated that 
you know, you do this high end, you know, um, science degree, but then often end up in a job that doesn't demand those kinds of, of levels of science from you um, when you're dealing in just sort of very basic dietetics. And every dietitian listening will understand what I mean by that. Um, or just talking regular healthy eating with people. But actually, when we get down to this level of the microbiome, then we start to really understand where our science training comes into play. Um, so, you know, there are, of course, other areas that are fascinating. You know, renal dietetics has long been interesting. Brain health is what I'm writing about at the moment. And that's going to be another key area. But absolutely, you know, the microbiome is front and center at the moment in terms of both from research and in terms of understanding what that research is and translating it into what does that mean we should all do to help improve our, our gut health. And dietitians can play a very key role here. And how do you, I mean, you're very busy with everything that you do and you've got two young boys and how do you manage to stay up to date? Have you got any tips mm. and tricks on how you keep up with the oh, literature? Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, look, I think um, I think partly it's my job, you know, because I ha- because I'm in the media and I'll get a job. I'll co- get a call in the morning from a journalist saying, "Joe, can you come on the radio this afternoon and talk about whatever?" <laughs> and it might be a new research uh, paper that's out, or it might be a particular topic. And often I've got to go and do my research and make sure that I oh, have I read about I don't know phytates in a long time? Have I read about um, whatever it might be? Sometimes it's a topic that I think, oh gosh. What do I know about that? Yesterday, I had to to comment on iodine levels in milk. So, of course, I and it the research had come out of, or the article rather, it wasn't actually research. The article had come out of the UK, and I thought, well, this isn't right. I don't think iodine is very prevalent in Australian milk. So, I did have to go and update my information and make sure that I was up to date. So, actually, that's kind of how I do it. You know, re- recognize that you can't have all of the information at your fingertips. Often, you do have to go and do your research. So, you know, whenever you can, I would say don't take an interview ad hoc and do it straight off the bat. Set up the time to do the interview so that you can actually do your homework. Um, And even if it's in my car on my phone, I'll do a very quick research scan to make sure that I'm not missing anything and that I'm on the ball with something. Often I'll call on on a mentor. So if I know a researcher who's doing stuff on iodine, I'll call that person up, give them a quick call and say, hey, I've got to do an interview on this. Is there anything that I should know? Can I double check that I've got the most up-to-date information? So I think being able to reach out to others, having a really strong network, and this comes back to us all being a team, you know, don't be out there on a limb on your own. Um, The other thing that I do is that I subscribe to really good research feeds. So, you know, I use ResearchGate, I use um, Science Direct. Um, You know, I really try to make sure that I've, I've got someone else, well, it's not someone else, I've got a, you know, a a computer engine doing some of the work for me and sending me the information that I think is in most of my sphere. So, you know, you can't be across every single area, but be an expert in your own area. And so I've picked the sort of research areas that I'm particularly interested in, and particularly, you know, got good knowledge in, and I make sure I'm up to date on those. And if, if if a topic does come along to me that I really don't know anything about, I'll also pass the buck and say, you know what, that's not really my area. I think you should speak to, I don't know, you know, whoever it is that I know is, is really the key expert in that area. Mm. And I no doubt you're using all of those research skills to write your seventh book and you launched your yeah. sixth one last year, Get Lean, Stay Lean. So I know there's lots of budding authors out there too. Any mm. tips on the writing process and writing a book or how to get that book publishing deal? Yeah, well, getting a book publishing deal isn't isn't easy. Um, you know, I've been relatively lucky that my first book, uh, I, again, I was presenting at a conference, 
Um, and there happened to be a, a book editor scout in the room who then approached me and asked me to do a book. So really, that's where my first one came about. Um, and so once you get your foot in the door, then, of course, then you've got a relationship with publishers. I know from experience that and talking with my publishers over the years, and I've worked with a number, um, is that they get sent literally thousands of manuscripts. So really, unless you've got a very unique idea and you've got a direct line of contact to a publisher, I really don't see the value in spending all that time writing a manuscript and then trying to get it published. It's such a lot of work to write a book. It's to my mind and the way I've always done that. I've never written a book without having a publisher. So I've always had the deal in place before I've written the book. Um, and to me, to be honest, that's the ideal way to do it. Um, so, you know, if, if you get the opportunity to meet with a publisher or, or, you know, actually building your profile first is the best way to get a book deal, because it's highly unlikely that an unknown dietitian who's done no media work, who's got no media platform is going to get a book deal. If you've got a great following on social media, um, you know, if you've got media profile or you've got, you know, something else that has managed to give you a really good profile, you stand a much better chance. And that's the bottom line. I know Ellie Bullen, who was a Griffith graduate last year, um, had a huge Instagram following and was offered a, a book deal from from that. So yeah, it, it, and and I see that happening all the time. So yeah, for for the young ones in particular who are experts at uh, building their social media following, I'm not going to give you any tips on that because I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're been, out. I, they're I'm out winning us on that end. one. <laughs> they are the winners on that one. I'm not competing. Um, no. You know, it's, um, yeah, that is certainly, if you can build a great social media following, I know several, even not dietitians, you know, just bloggers and influencers who've managed to get a book simply out on the back of their social media following. Mm. So what do you do to continue to grow and develop? Are there things that you do? Do you have oh, mentors look, or? I think mm. when people do these interviews, it's very easy to sort of spike forth with, oh, this is what I do and this is what I do and make it all seem like you're perfect. And I, <laughs> but I'm far from perfect. I don't know that I am actively, I mean, I certainly go to conferences, I read papers, I read other people's books, I, I network and, and, and those are the sorts of things that I do. But being honest, there's often many times, probably more times than not times where I do feel like I'm just juggling all the balls in the air and trying to make sure that none of them fall. Um, so, you know, and I think that that's normal, too. If people are very honest about it, that's the way that I think most of us are. Um, the old adage about ask a busy person to get something done is is very true because you just often I'm like, OK, what are the priorities? What do I actually have to do today? And and that's my priority. And being able to let the other stuff go, I think, is actually just as important. So it's not like, um, you know, this amazing person who's hitting every goal and got these to-do lists that I nail every time. It, it actually just often is about, okay, what do I really have to get done this this week? And and if you keep yourself busy and you've got work coming in, you know, my my um uh, validation, I suppose, is that I keep getting work. You know, it keeps coming to me. And and as long as work is still coming to me, I think I must be doing a reasonably job and 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 uh, you know I can keep the ball rolling that way. And it's only when you get those breathing spaces like, you know, I've just had some time off over Christmas and New Year, that's that's really my reflection time when I sit back and I go, okay, you know, where am I? What do I really want to do? Am I doing the things that I really want to do? Is there any areas I want to change? And that's my reflection time when I then think, okay, go back at it. This is what I really want to achieve this year. So I, I have the big milestones in place. In the spirit of keeping it real then, are there any challenges or obstacles you've had to overcome along the, along the journey? 
Oh, goodness, yes. Mm-hmm. Lots, lots and lots and lots. I mean, I, I really, I guess my major challenge in my career was, but, but also became a good thing for my career was, was when I, you know, found myself single with two young children and um, was at that time uh, working part time and didn't have much of my own income um, and didn't get a, you know, any money out of, of um, my marriage for a very long time. And so financial, financially, it was tough for me for several years. And I had to make two ends meet um, and, and support two little kids living in a two-bed apartment. And those years were tough, you know. And, and But I, actually, it also gave me the kick up my bum to go, you know what, Joanna, you've got a brain, you've got a career, you have a PhD, you're qualified, you can make this career work and you can support yourself financially. And actually, it was one of the most important lessons Professor Jenny Brand Miller taught me. I remember when I was still doing my PhD and I got married and she said to me, keep your own name. <laughs> and she said to me, always be financially independent. And that's my other message to younger women is always be financially independent because you don't know what's around the corner and what way to move forward. And so, you know, that was my kick up the bum to go, come on, you know, you actually really can do this yourself. And 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 then it's rewarding when, when you do and your business then grows. So that was probably my major hurdle. But even today, there's still hurdles. You know, my my I'm remarried, but, you know, my husband and I have had financial ups and downs over the last year. Um, we've had, uh, you know, the house move and, and, and things to do with that. And I work from home. So things like that make it difficult. Um, you know, dealing in the media with, you know, frequently I have to deal with backlashes from this, that and the other. You have to have a pretty tough skin working in the media because not everyone will love you. And there will be people that disagree with you and learning how to handle that and, and to do that and, and remain professional and calm at all times when actually you sometimes want to yell and scream at people. And, and um, you, of course, can't do that. So, so I think those are the sorts of challenges and, and learning how to, how to achieve that life work balance that everyone talks about, learning how to get that balance because I, I am a working mom and my boys are, are, of course, more important than what's happening work-wise, but my work is what supports the kids. So it's getting that balance between the two is, is always a juggle and always a challenge. Mm. And you mentioned the social media there and some, you know, that you can attract criticism and some of the, the trolls. Any, and I know other dietitians have faced that as well. How do you handle yeah. those situations? Well, my, my policy always is to, sometimes people will alert me to something that's been said about me on someone else's um, Facebook page or whatever. And my policy generally is to go in and make one comment and then back out so that I don't get involved in a conversation. Because in my early career, when it first happened to me, sometimes I got involved in a bit of argy-bargy and, you know, your defensive nature, because you do want to yell and scream sometimes and go, are you kidding me? Really? You know, and you want to explain further. And this is one of the problems of social media. Everything's in small bites, size pieces, and no one wants to have a, a more more lengthy debate. Um, and, and people will tend to pigeonhole you. I think that's probably what annoys me most in social media is when I get pigeonholed. And I think this probably happens to many dietitians where there's an idea about what a dietitian thinks and what hole you come from. And often it's that, oh, you're all about whether it's, you know, you're all about high carbohydrate, low fat. Now, you know, I've never talked about high carbohydrate, low fat, you know, for at least 20 years. Yet that you get pigeonholed into that's just one example of what might happen. Um, and so people will pigeonhole you. So it might be valid criticism over something you've said or something, a project you've been involved with or a product that I've backed, or it might be unfair criticism over something that I don't even think and promote. But whichever way, you know, I've learned that trying to engage in a conversation with trolls, is no, there's no point. You're never going to change their point of view. So my policy is go and make one comment, 
I've defended myself in my eyes. Maybe I convert a few people who are reading it and then back out and don't get involved. Um, and so I think that that's the policy you have to take and just be a bit thick skinned and recognize, yeah, not everyone's going to love you. Not everyone's going to agree with what you say. As long as my policy is, as long as I'm always science backed, as long as I'm reading the research, as long as I remain calm and professional at all times, at least in, uh, I may not always be calm and professional in my personal life or when you and I discuss things <laughs> offline, <laughs> but in the, in the, in the public eye, I will always be calm and professional. And, and that's the way that you have to be. And, and I think then you'll always rise above the people who will not, who are not prepared to have an intelligent debate. If you want to have an intelligent debate, I'm more than happy Bring to. Bring it on. Yeah. 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 Um, I think it's such an exciting time to be a dietitian because there's never been such a greater focus on nutrition. So what do you what do you think are the opportunities for dietitians in the future? I absolutely agree. And and dietitians have to step up to the mark. You know, I think in the past too many dietitians have been, you know, a little mouse-like, you know, fading into the background, not wanting to speak up, not wanting to argue, because by nature, most of us who have gone into into dietetics in particular over straight nutrition science have are, you know are caring people there are people who want to help who want to to be so it's they're they're often the dietitian's personality is not one of confrontation not one of being stand up and and be the loudest voice in the room and be the I'm, I'm a bit of an extrovert but i know that many dietitians are not and there's lots of roles you don't have to have a job like mine you know there's lots of roles for all sorts of different personality types within the nutrition world um, but I think overall, you know, my message to other fellow dietitians is stand up and have your voice. Be more confident about the messages. We are the nutrition science experts. You know, you are a scientist. I, I frequently introduce myself as a nutrition scientist as well as a dietitian um, to, to reflect that fact that we are scientists. We're not just, you know, gone to university and learned about how to cook and how to, to promote healthy eating and promote the dietary guidelines. And I think that's really important to get that message across to the public so that we maintain our credibility. Um, and actually, I've, I've been um, uh, reassured, actually, by a lot of the, the work and the studies that have been that I've been involved with lately over what public perception of dietitians, I think we think our reputation is far below what the public thinks. So even some of the work you've done, Marie, you know, has shown that the public actually have a have a pretty good uh, um, uh, uh, opinion of dietitians. But we get sidelined by the people with the loudest voices are actually a minority. And so we get waylaid, I think, by those loud voices. So don't be. Be confident in your approach. Speak up. Nutrition is going to be front and center for the next few decades at least. Um, so grow with it. Understand what the challenges are going to be in the future. You know, I, for one, am starting to talk more and more about sustainability, impact on the planet. How are we going to feed a growing population? All of these kinds of things are all going to become. So with the younger dietitians, you're going to have to deal with this stuff even more. So, you know, get involved, be part of it, be part of public health um, as well as, as, as part of. So there's all sorts of different areas that you can go into as a young dietitian these days. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's lots of opportunities out there. And as you said, lots of different tracks for different types of people as well. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Our time is just about coming to a close. So we'll just end with some more um, fun or personal questions, if you don't mind. So I know okay. through the, gu the gut revolution, <laughs> you know, you were talking about farts and things like that, but I wondered what your funniest or weirdest thing that's ever happened to you as a dietitian. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, but filming ABC Catalyst standing in a in a shopping centre talking the science of farts with people was pretty weird. <laughs> was up there. <laughs> yeah, but I did also, I was trying to, to think about God, what weird things have happened to me over the years. I do think one of my weirdest things was 
was when I um, several, this is many moons ago now, I think it might even have been before I had children or certainly when they were very small. Um, and it was after the first series of Underbelly had come out. So that might tell us the year if anyone knows that. And I was asked to do a, a sort of in one of those infomercials for a Nivea Q10, um, CoQ10 body cream. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. But, and I think the nutrition connection was loosely through CoQ10. <laughs> and anyway, so I had to go down to Melbourne to film this. And it was one of those adverts where you did a little interview with the presenter. And then there was sort of overlay of, of you doing various things. And they had said to me, oh, well, Joe, you'll be in a tennis skirt. I don't play tennis. I said, can I be in running shorts? They said, no, we'd like you in a tennis skirt. You know? and, I, and then can we just have you putting some of the cream onto your legs before you do, before you're walking out the house in the tennis skirt? So I said, yeah, sure. No problem. Thinking I'd have the tennis skirt on. Anyway, no, 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 no. Long story short, I was in the bathroom of this underbelly, where underbelly had been filmed. So it was that bathroom with the big jacuzzi in the middle of the <laughs> thing. And I had to sit wrapped in a bathrobe. For hours, probably. <laughs> yeah, for hours, surrounded by, you know, rubbing CoQ10. And of course, they kept saying to me, Joanna, can you do it a bit more sensually? Because I was very efficient Scottish, <laughs> rubbing the cream into my skin. So I had a ridiculous, <laughs> surreal moment sitting on the edge of a jacuzzi wrapped in a bathrobe with a crew of about 15 cameramen and soundies and directors around me rubbing CoQ10, Nivea cream into my legs and arms thinking, this is very bizarre. I'm a nutrition scientist. How did this moment come about? So you just never know what's going to happen in your career. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you're a budding actress, Joanna. Oh, well, yeah. you know, if it goes wrong for me in nutrition, yes, mode, you've got another career. Nice to know I have another avenue. <laughs> well, th this might answer my next question then. What is one interesting fact about you? Any, any other things that we might not know about you? Well, maybe that I kind of I alluded to in our early conversation here that I nearly did music over science. So maybe that, and I find this quite fascinating now that my kids, my eldest has just gone into year eight. So we're dealing with, starting to deal with, you know, what's he really interested in? What's he really going to be good at? So when I was at high school, actually, music was a massive part of my life and I nearly did music over science. So I played, I played the piano and then switched to the flute and did the flute quite seriously. So when I finished school, I was playing, I'd done my grade eight flute, really thought about doing music at university. Um, and in fact, came to Australia with my flute um, in my gap year before university. And I told my mum, I'm going to play my flute in the opera house. So as a young 17 year old, I went on an opera house tour and played my flute in the ladies. So Yay. that I could tell my mum I played my flute <laughs> in the opera house. So there you go. Yay. <laughs> Do you still play? Oh, very occasionally. I can't say I have a, the most beautiful silver flute that my parents bought me when I got very serious and was playing in the Scottish Youth Orchestra and, a, and, a, and another adult orchestra. And um, I still have the flute. I can't quite bring myself to sell it. So I only play for myself. It's been a long time since I played in public or for my kids. Occasionally, they ask me to play. So you never know. Maybe I'll revive it. And I think it's very good for your brain. Well, I mean, this is what's interesting. I, I sort of um, was talking about my son. You know, he's very good at maths and science. I'm encouraging him. I, I get both my kids doing piano lessons. So in fact, for brain development, you know, music and maths and science are actually very closely aligned, apparently. Mm. So Helen Wellings, who's a, who's a very good uh, from the news world, Channel 7 News, mm. she is actually a, an excellent um, pianist. And she told me that, that in fact, that um, the piano is very good for developing the brain for, and that's shown um, for maths and science. So there you go. If you've mm. got kids, uh, yeah. get them playing the piano. 
Yeah. And we might have to get you to bring the flute up to Dietitians Unite, which is just in a few <laughs> weeks' time. And we look forward oh, to gosh. seeing you there as MC again. Thank you so much for joining us again this year. We've got a great program planned and look forward to seeing you up in Brisbane in a few weeks. Yeah, I hope everyone's going to join us. It'll be a fabulous day. Yeah. Thanks so much, Joanna, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to chat to you and and I learned some things I didn't know about you. So thanks so much for being with us and we really appreciate it. Thanks, Marie. Thanks, Joanna. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast. If you were intrigued by this episode and keen to learn more about gut health, then we are actually holding a two-part series of live webinars in the area of gut health, and our speakers will be Dr. Megan Rossi and Dr. Joanna McMillan, and uh, these live webinars have been held in April 2018. So you'll be able to join the live webinar and you'll also get access to the recording uh, or if you would prefer, you can purchase the recording after the live webinars. And these are available at dietitianconnection.com and then um, under the webinars tab. So we look forward to seeing you on this gut health series of webinars and also look forward to you joining us on a future Dietitian Connection podcast. podcast.